The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Stomps, stomps, stomps. <laughs> you are listening to the Burrows of Berea. All right. Well, welcome back to the Burrows of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and across the room, across the church, is Rocket Man Andy Bishop. Hello. And straight out of Compton is Ralph Hicks. Represent. These guys don't even know what we're talking about. We're not actually making fun. Ralph was born in Compton, California. So that's why we say that all the time. Straight out of Compton. Yeah. Straight out of Compton. We don't have uh, Billy. We don't have Sarita. We don't have Cherry. We're on, on location still. That's right. We have been, uh, this is one of the things that we've been talking about on the show for the past month or so, really, is that we're going to get this round table, which has turned into a semicircle. For all of us. So we have a lot of guests. This is going to be a, an unusual podcast because normally we only have a few people uh, as our guests or one person as our guest. Today, we actually have five people. Outnumbered. As, yeah, we're outnumbered for sure, uh, which is great. And so I'll go through and introduce uh, everybody. <laughs> so to my right uh, is Glenn Hill, the author of Christianity's Great Dilemma. We had him on as a as a guest for our testimony and some of these, all of these uh, gentlemen are actually going to give a testimony, but they won't necessarily fall in the order. This show might will actually come out before some of the other testimonies. Also, um, we have author Mike Sullivan, who wrote Armageddon Deception and Hidden Ki- Hidden uh, Kingdom. Is that correct? Uh, House Divided. House Divided. What was I thinking? Hidden Kingdom. House <laughs> Divided and Armageddon Deception. I have both books, by the way. I have several copies of both books, actually. And also, we have Robert Cruikshank, who is here. Uh, if you go to the BereanBibleChurch.org, you can find uh, a lot of his talks, which are fascinating to me. I love uh, I love this stuff. Welcome, Bob, for being on the show. Oh, good to be with you. Yeah, so nice. Bob, I'm, can you go ahead and pull that sucker in? Yeah, just the whole grab mic. the whole yeah, thing and the move thing. it in. And it's it's hard to remember sometimes, but try to, try to keep it in your head. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. And also... Uh, we have, from the Berean Bible Church, we have Pastor David Curtis and uh, Jeff McCormick. Jeff, are you uh, an assistant pastor or associate pastor? He's an elder pastor? here. He's what? An elder here. He's an elder here. Okay. That's because I had a birthday and I'm getting older, so now I'm an yeah. elder. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I know that as I've emailed you guys and talked to, and, and by the way, thank you all for being here. It's so, uh, it's awesome to me that we're doing this. And I know that with my email, sometimes when we start we talk about eschatology or we talk about the millennial reign or whatever it might be, because we're serious and we do a lot of studies, we feel maybe a little nervous or have some anxiety about how are we going to talk about this and we try to prepare. I don't want anybody to feel that way in this. this, We're going to discuss this with good loving hearts to the best of our ability because our listeners are asking the questions, okay, fine, you say you're a preterist, well then how about this? How about the thousand-year reign? You know, it's not called the millennial reign. It's a thousand years. That's what it says. And it says a thousand years so many times. So there's going to be, that's that's kind of where we're heading with this. But before we get in all seriousness, my wife, my loving wife sent me this joke. And so I want to kick off with the joke, you know, let's, let's start lighthearted. So it says, an 80-year-old lady was marrying for the fourth time. 
So a local newspaper, which was interested, asked if she wouldn't mind talking about her first three husbands and what they did for a living. So she smiled and said, my first husband was a banker. Then I married a circus ringmaster. Next was a preacher. And now in my 80s, I married a funeral director. So when asked why the four men had such diverse careers, she explained, I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, That's pretty good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for giving me that one, babe. Sometimes I, I have some jokes, and uh, they're, they're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cringeworthy, yeah, I think, would some be Some of them are really bad. Yeah, we shouldn't tell those jokes. Anyway, so what I thought I would do to start off this roundtable round table is to actually give our listening audience uh, an introduction, a, a brief introduction to preterism, right? And I thought I would ask Glenn the first question. So in your testimony, Glenn, you said that you were reading the scriptures and you saw the truth. Can you give me just a brief explanation of what you what you read that made you change your mind in the scriptures to suddenly see what you called the truth? Like, for instance, Matthew 24. Well, as I said in my testimony, uh, when I came across, uh, upon the scriptures that didn't fit my theology mm-hmm. and about the end times, I just kind of passed over them. And my honest feeling was, once I can understand this scripture, I'm sure it will agree with me. And of course, once I understood it, it didn't. But uh, the the amount of scriptures that supported the preterist view is what persuaded me. It was just more and more. And scriptures like in Hebrews where the suffering saints were promised that in just a little while, he that is to come will come and will not tarry. And all my life, I had pondered that, you know, and not dare preach about it because it looked like he'd tarried 2,000 years. But when I delved into that a little bit, it even became more powerful because the New King James adds one very in there in a very little while. If you go back to the Greek, there are two varies. And what the Hebrew writer was telling the people was that in a very, very little while, he that is to come will come and will not tarry. And there's no, there's no getting around that. Either he came or he misled them all, you know. And so it was scripture after scripture. The, uh, the scripture people like to quote, and from Thessalonians about the Lord coming with angels for flame and fire, taking vengeance on those that know not the gospel. When you delve into that, Paul was promising the Thessalonians that that coming was going to bring relief to them. They were suffering. And hold on, the Lord's coming is going to bring relief. And I'd never read that in there before, but that was why he was talking about it, that his coming was going to bring relief. Well, either, I mean, in the church today says he hasn't come yet. Either um, he did come or Paul and the Lord were all false prophets. And I, I didn't, couldn't bring myself to believe that. So, 
the, just the great amount of predator scriptures. Somebody did a paper one time called 101, 101 Predator Scriptures. Yeah, I've David got a copy Green. of it at home. Yeah. But um, and, and if you let them speak to you and believe what they say to you, then there's no denying how what we stand for is true. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, and Pastor Curtis, you've had you have numerous things on on your website and on your YouTube channel. Um, the word preterist itself comes from the Latin word praetor, right, which means past. Um, Correct. So, whenever you, if you were to give us a brief summary, much like uh, Glenn did. If you were if you were trying to introduce someone, let's say you've mentioned meeting someone at the gym or meeting somewhere out, if you're trying to present someone, like it, I want our listeners to be able to hear it, is if you were trying to present, like, okay, here's the problem with where with what's going on, like not obviously we're not punching people over the head about this, but how would you tell them about this doctrine so that they would at least begin to go and search? Uh, I think I would. Talking about the coming of the Lord, everybody believes the Lord's coming back. And I question people as to when is he coming back? And they will all say soon. And so then you got to stop and question them on what does that mean? Let's look at some of these verses and take them to Matthew 16, 27 and 28, where the Lord says, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I'm like, so what did he mean to those guys? You know, they're going to still be alive. And I, I try to focus on the time statements and get people to think about time in a real sense. You know, it says soon. But, you know, if it said soon, you know, people would distort the word soon and make it mean something else. But it's not that soon, quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here, this generation, any every text about the parousia almost has a a time statement with it. There's some that don't, but majority of them have time statements. When he talks about it, he you know gives you a time statement soon, quickly, shortly, this generation. So it, it was something, and and here's the thing that I think people have to understand to understand the preterist view. They have to understand audience relevance. The scriptures are not written to us, but that's how most people read it, like a newspaper. They got it today. Look, the Lord's coming soon. No, that was written to them 2,000 years ago. What did it mean to them? Did it mean anything to them? And, and that's part of hermeneutics is audience relevance, which hermeneutics is a word most people don't have never heard. It's just the science of biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the scripture? There's laws. And then one of them is audience relevance. It has to have meaning to the people it was written to. And once you understand that, it changes the way you look at things and you see, okay, soon meant soon to them, not to us. Mm-hmm. So something has to be wrong with our thinking here. Sure. And so, and I'm sure anybody could answer this, but since you said the word parousia, could you explain to our audience what that actually is, what parousia is? It's just a Greek word for coming, okay? Mm -hmm. And it means presence. It means arrival. And it's not, the word parousia doesn't necessarily mean a second coming. It means arrival or presence. You know, when the Lord told his disciples that he was coming, they never knew he was leaving, but it meant his arrival as the king, him showing up in, in as the king, as the Messiah. So that's what they look forward to. And that's a, a verse. It's not the, I mean, that's a word. It's not the only word that's used of the coming, but it's one of the main ones. Right. Um, Jeff, if you don't mind, uh, I, I actually watched one of your uh, talks 
about the sun will be darkened. And I know that some of the people that talk to me like, hey, I've actually seen uh, preachers speak about this. They they say, uh, okay, as for, like an anti-preterist discussion, they would say, has anybody seen the sun go dark yet? Has anybody seen the moon lose its light yet? Um, obviously, you believe in this, you know, in, the, in preterism, fulfilled eschatology, whatever uh, we want to call it. What would you say to that person that says, hey, the sun hasn't been darkened yet, and the moon hasn't lost its light? How would you respond to that? I mean, that's, and that, and it really goes back to the whole hermeneutics that he was talking about and the audience relevance. The, um, and that's, that was a key thing for me. When I saw everybody's got the end of the world scenario in their mind, they're like, well, the sky's going to fall and the world's going to blow up and there's fire and there's stars hitting the ground and et cetera, et cetera. But wait a minute. Don't you know this has happened a couple of times? No, they don't because A, they don't read their Bible. We already just talk about that in, on the side. But when you see that this language has been used elsewhere in previous scriptures in the Old Testament to not mean the end of the world, then you have to say, oh, okay. And because now you understand to the audience, they understand this is how God said this in the past. When nations were taken down by an enemy nation, it was the stars were falling, the, the, the light was put out. The, the world, their world was destroyed. And that was national judgment. That was apocalyptic language for national judgment. It didn't mean that the world literally ended. Of course, then you go into the whole stuff about what are stars representing? You know, you got the 11 tribes and the stars and the dreams and all that stuff. There's a lot you can go into, but you just look at the general times in the Old Testament where there were these judgments that sounded like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And you're like, now read those and then go back and read the New Testament and tell me what's different. Mm-hmm. It's the same language. And so people, again, they read the New Testament as if it's been put in, a, it's in a vacuum. It's its own story. And it obviously doesn't mean anything that, I literally asked somebody once on a different podcast I used to do about a different topic of preterism. I said, well, it's mentioned in the Old Testament and it's mentioned in the New. How do you think they relate? And this was a non-preterist guy. And he's like, oh, I don't think they have anything to do with each other. Mm, yeah. It's the same language. And in that case, it was the new heavens and new earth. But the point is, they you don't correlate the old with the new, but first off, you're not reading the old, most likely. People don't read the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. That doesn't pertain to us. But if you read that and you realize this language was used multiple times, which is what my message had shown. So when you get to the New Testament, why all of a sudden does it have to be something totally different? All of a sudden now it's literally the stars falling and literally the moon turning, you know, and the fire. And so, yeah, I just kind of try to take them back to it's, you know, what did it mean to them? Well, they are based on the fact that they have this whole background of Old Testament scripture in their head. Mm-hmm. They, they were the Old Testament world. We keep thinking new and old, two totally different things. These were the people. They were living in the Old Covenant. That was their scriptures. Right. They weren't reading New Testament scriptures. So they were hearing another use of their scriptures applied to them. And then somebody wrote it down and now we've got it as a New Testament, but it's the same story. Right. So and, yeah, and that's that's great that you to point that out that we cannot unhitch the Old Testament Old Testament from the New Testament. It's uh, I I remember watching the movie Contact and they were trying to figure out this message from the alien. They called it the primer, you know? And I and I realized I was like, wow, it's almost like the New Testament is the primer for the old, like it, it unlocks the old for us. And especially Matthew, when he talks about out of Egypt, have I called my son? I, I was so confused about that scripture for so long because I thought, this is Hosea. Like, what does he mean? He's talking about Israel. What does he mean? And then, you know, as suddenly, you know, later on in my life, I'm like, oh, wow, 
there's like a second Exodus going on here. And I hadn't really, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really noticed, you know? And then I started picking up on it. I was like, oh, this is something else. And Bob, when it, you did a talk actually on um, the thousand year reign or the symbology of it. And I, I remember, I believe you, you spoke on it as hyperbole, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Could, you, could you maybe just, for the listeners that come in and say, well, wait a minute, you know, there's still the thousand year reign that has to happen. And I believe partial preterists, this is where they split, right? I think, don't they believe that the thousand year reign is future? That would be correct. Some yeah. of them, like R.C. Sproul. Most of the things are future. <laughs> yeah. uh, They're believing most things are future. Like R.C. Sproul, the partial preterist They are? believe the parousia is future, the judgment's future, the resurrection's future. Uh, I don't see how they could, I don't even know how you could split that. Like, well, well. They, they, be, they believe that the thousand years is figurative and symbolic, but they believe we're still in that period. Ah. Whereas we see it as symbolic, and Bob will get into that. But, yeah. But so, yeah, Mike, Mike put it well. We both would see it as symbolic. At least, at least modern post-millennialists, there was a uh, older version, I'm, Mike's probably familiar with it, where they looked for a literal thousand years in the future, but most modern post-millennialists, they're not, they believe like the amillennialists that the thousand years is symbolic of a very long period of time. And uh, I used a quote from G.K. Beale and Mike uses it um, in a couple of his books, I think, where even Beale says it's not necessarily symbolic of a longer period of time but it just speaks to fullness or completeness or perfection. And uh, when David was talking about, you know, the texts that say shortly and quickly and at hand, well, those aren't just in, you know, Matthew 24 or the epistles, they're in the book of Revelation. And those texts actually bookend the book of Revelation. And the, the millennium falls within those bookends. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Shortly, shortly, quickly, yeah. quickly, yet a thousand years are in there. Yeah, now, yeah that's somebody sort of somebody might say them. we're being in, inconsistent because I think everybody sitting here would agree with me that chapters 21 and 22 have ongoing fulfillment. But that's the new heavens and the new earth. The nature of the new heavens and the new earth is that they have ongoing fulfillment. Uh, the new Jerusalem the golden city of Revelation 21. It's supposed to expand and fill the whole earth. That's an ongoing process. But Revelation 20, the millennium, that falls within those bookends. So you got to figure out how does that fit? And um, my whole point in the uh, message on uh, hyperbole is that numeric hyperbole is used all throughout the Old Testament. And it's not just the the Old Testament. It's... um, all the literature in the ancient Near East of that time period used numeric hyperbole. They just, you think of like the Sumerian Kings list or uh, a lot of the Ugaritic texts uh, do that as well. They just exaggerate the numbers. That's what, that's what they expected at the time. That's what a literate reader was expecting. Um, a good example in the Bible would be the Exodus. You have 600,000 men leaving Egypt. Well, that's just men. They're going to have wives and they're going to have children. So that number blows up to like 3 million. And plus it says a mixed multitude went with them. Now, just about any commentary I've read, I mean, I'm talking about um, Eugene Carpenter, Nahum Sarna. I mean, good, solid commentators. They all realize that that number's too big. 
600,000 people did not literally leave Egypt. Um, so it's a hyperbolic number. It's exaggerated. And the whole point of the purpose of that was to, uh, in all the cultures, it was to magnify the greatness of their king or their god, um, whatever deity is being spoke of in any given culture. So, you know, you fast forward to the book of Revelation, I see John just basically repurposing that ancient literary device, hyperbole, hyperbolic numbers to uh, magnify the greatness and glory of Yahweh and the accomplishment of his people. What was accomplished in that 40-year period? The God, by the time Paul wrote Colossians, the gospel had gone out into all nations and Satan was deceived from or was bound from deceiving the nations, ultimately into gathering them together for the final war. But still, the binding entailed the deception of the nations, and the nations were freed. They did see the truth. So my opinion is that it's um, hyperbole speaking to the magnitude of that uh, accomplishment. Right. And I think we're all on the same page there. I'm not, I'm not sure. There, there are different, not all full preterists agree. Sure. Um, and Mike and I know some who have some very different views, <laughs> but right. But um, you know, Bob's right on the money there. And if you're an amillennialist, you're a postmillennialist, or you're a preterist, you understand that the thousand years is symbolic. And a classic passage is taken out of uh, Psalm 50, where mm-hmm. God says yeah. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right. That doesn't mean that on Hill 1001, oh, He doesn't <laughs> own that cattle. Actually, I own that one. Yeah. You own that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that yeah. cow belongs to somebody else. <laughs> so, so it's a number communicating fullness and completeness. Mm-hmm. This is a complete and full reign of Christ, mm-hmm. and we see that as His pre-Parousia reign, and then after He comes in AD 70, the kingdom isn't gone. He rules in the fullness of his kingdom today in the new covenant age through the church. But um, yeah, that number is definitely symbolic. You don't want to go into the book of Revelation, which is the most apocalyptic, figurative, metaphoric book. It's a vision and start literalizing these numbers, you mm-hmm. know, 144,000 and, and so forth. I mean, it's it's a symbolic genre sure. and we need to treat it that way. So these premillennials that insist, well, it says a thousand years, right. you know, they, they, what, what kind of genre are we looking at here? There is a, uh, Andy, you'll remember uh, on our study of Samson, we talked about how uh, Samson hip and thigh kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey and then does the jaw drop, right? And he's yeah. got it done. And, and Tiziana brought up a good point. She was like, eh, it probably wasn't actually a thousand. Like this was an expanded, like, an exaggeration, uh, like you said. Probably, I think, yeah. It's, I think it, I, I, it just, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think I actually used that example in. Oh, do you the, on the message on hyperbolic the, numbers? And I, I can't remember what it was. I got it here in this pile of notes, but like I calculated how many people in so many seconds he would have to kill to get it accomplished in a certain amount of time. And it's it's just yeah, absurd. we did that too. We yeah, played that I mean, game. It, it, you think of like an over the top. Uh, Marvel movie where like Captain America's got a shield out. One time, that was a yeah. flash. And, um, <laughs> but actually, I do think that's a good analogy though, because what do we do? We watch movies and they have what in them? They have special effects. Right. Why are they there? To make it more exciting. Yes. Well, guess what? The ancient people didn't have movies to watch. So there were certain literary devices that were used to make things more exciting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we need to realize that we're, we're reading literature that's thousands of years old, and we need to realize we're walking into their world. 
and not vice versa. We can't impose our world on the text. Right. We have to walk back into their world and find out like what they did and how they did things. I liked what you said at the conference. Uh, man, I forgot to tell you this, Andy, because it's so cool. So back in the ancient literature, they didn't have footnotes, right? They didn't, no, they, yeah. they didn't okay. introduce footnotes until what, the 14th century or 15th century? I can't remember, but it was late. It's late they, man. they didn't it's have late. footnotes and they did not have chapter and verse divisions. Right. So a biblical writer, like you were talking about the Hosea passage. Mm-hmm. Okay, if Matthew wants to alert his reader's attention to that Hosea passage to kind of get them to see a second Exodus theme, he can't say, check out Hosea 11.1. Yeah, footnote The only the thing he can do is make an allusion to it. Right. Um, and that's what the biblical writers are doing. Every time they footnote a passage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah. what, it's, it's always so fascinating to me. If you think about, do you remember, this is probably like the second or third episode we ever did. Uh, I said, when you read the Bible, it's like when you become a professional at something, like you're an awesome sound engineer and you know all the tricks of the trade, right? People who build awesome websites, they know all the tricks of the trade. Well, some of these authors in that, that God used you know, to write this book, they were using all the tricks of their trade too. They, they were the ones that were like, they're telling these yeah. stories. It's like my, my parallel, my way into that is just knowing that when I work on a, piece of music that is kind of awful, it doesn't matter because it'll never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so these authors would also have probably been the ones that were just as likely to be good at storytelling mm-hmm. as anything. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, they were people writing could, things. Yeah. They were writing things for the people. I mean, we talked about that earlier, and then Bob, you said literate. People are reading that they were literate. Well, most of the people were illiterate. And so in, in telling these stories, they had to get people's attention and have them understand in the language of the day and the times because they weren't literate. They didn't have understanding. So they had to use this literacy in order to get them to understand and get their point across. You, you know if what? I, you bring up a really good point. I, I just wanted to piggyback on that. Um, just about ju- jumping back to the book of Revelation, just about any commentator you read will make the point that the prophecy was meant to be read aloud and heard. Not necessarily, just about everybody says that. So we need to approach the book of Revelation like that. So what's going on? John's putting forth a bunch of uh, symbols and images, images and things to evoke a response in the listener. He's painting pictures. And, you know, I always say we need to, we need to just not read the Word of God. You want to feel the Word of God. So when you read it, you want to approach it that way. Um, I didn't mean to, but since he said that about— No, that's yeah, great. And it's, Rick, if I can add a comment here. Bob, I guess it was about a year ago, he spoke here, and he spoke on the millennium, and he spoke on the thousand years being figurative. And it, and it really threw some people for a loop, you know, because they're like, what, the Bible's not literal? And, you know— so people get offended by that, but they have to understand we're living in, an, in a Western culture. The Bible's an Eastern book, and this is how they dealt with things. This is how they, this is their world, as Bob said. And so we're not in their world. To us, when you say a thousand, we mean a thousand, right. okay? When, not 998, a thousand, okay? That wasn't the way it was. And so it's not a matter of the Bible's not literal. We just have to understand what 
is going on in their world. Yeah. And and we the dispensational premillennial so he says you got to interpret the Bible literally. We want the literal meaning of the passage. We don't want to interpret it literally because mm. we want like I said before, what kind of genre are we reading? And we want the literal meaning of the text. Sure. And and that's the problem with modern Christianity with the rise of premillennial dispensationalism is this emphasis on the literal, which is a hyper pendulum swing from liberalism, you know, where there was no, like Pastor Kirsten, there's no miracles. And so fundamentalism and evangelicalism had this radical pendulum swing to where now everything's got to be literal. It's a thousand. I believe it's a thousand, you know, right. instead of the literal meaning. I it's, like your literal meaning because here in America, it's all about interpretation. And boy, when you said earlier about you take that text out of context, that's, that is America. Yeah. Right think- there. We, we, we can interpret anything we want to justify uh, what it is we want. We're justifying our dogma with an interpretation. I, I, love, I love the idea that, uh, that to get the literal meaning, you don't necessarily read literally. That's kind of a problem in law too. Like American law is about the letter of the law, but uh, like British law is about the spirit of the law, right? And that's why, and, and both of them are interpretive, there's no way to get around being interpretive, but but the spirit is about intent and the letter is about, well, when words change, and they do every day a little bit, when words change, the letter of a thing changes. Uh, there's a lot more wiggle room for a thing to stay the same in intent if you're talking about spirit. So I think that's a fascinating the literal read versus the literal intent is a fascinating division to me. Sure. And Glenn, whenever whenever you try to share, you know, let's say that in your testimony, I remember you saying that someone since you wanted to buy your book and he was 25 miles away from you and you wanted to meet with him. When you share your faith, you know, when you're talking about Jesus, are you... Um, are you usually sharing it with people that are already believers that are in the Futurist Church, and is there a way to, that you present the gospel to them, or are you sharing it with just everyone and whatever that you know? Do you, do you understand my question? Like every time I try to share it, if I talk about the preterist, you know, eschatology whatsoever, it's immediately we go to the thousand years or something literal. Like, do you have that experience when you share the gospel? Not really, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what else to say next. Yeah, you know, no, it's fine. I, I was just, I, I was just curious if, because every time I begin to share, that's I automatically get all the questions right back, which is what this is for. <clears throat> the whole point of this semicircle roundtable that we're doing is that the listeners that are coming at me and saying, okay. Um, then how is Jesus literally sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and there's also sacrifices going on at the same time, right? It's there, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to take Ezekiel literally, not only is Jesus supposed to be on a literal throne in the temple in Jerusalem, but you have Gentile with another rebuilt temple where Mm -hmm. there's animal sacrifices and Jesus is smelling the stench 
of these animal sacrifices, which is an abomination according to, to Paul and Galatians and the book of Hebrews. But now you, yeah. if you're going to take everything literal, this is the absurdity of it. Yes. And the nations, the Gentile nations are supposed to travel to this physical Jerusalem where there's a physical temple and physical sacrifices. Now, if they're going to be consistent, these Gentiles have to be circumcised. Yeah. Before, So now we've got, we're wow, coming back to circumcision. We're coming back to animal sacrifices. So this is the, the absurdity yeah. of taking the Bible in a hyper-literal way when it comes to the millennium. Right. And so, because to me, Hebrews speaks of, you know, a, a more better covenant, right? And we understand that. And so when I, when, when I was trying to interpret it in a literal fashion, and I'm thinking, how is the Lord, how is God accepting the animal sacrifices? Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Why are we going backwards? This doesn't make sense because we're taking it hyper-literally. And so when I want to share this with people, like, they take it so far, but then they go right back into the literal, and I want to break that. Well, Am I think I, I agree with Glenn when he's, with what he just said, and it was a simple answer, but I believe that it, he's just preaching. He's just talking to people about what he believes and how it, and every time I hear you doing it, and this is, this is not a negative thing, it's just you're pointing out the difference because you're pushing preterism. Yeah. Where he's just pushing Jesus. And yeah. I don't mean that as a put down or anything. I don't think he's getting the feedback that you are because this podcast and everything we're doing, we're talking we're, and bringing that makes up so, Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Because we are. We are coming at it that way. You know, we are. That's the whole, again, that's the whole point of our podcast. We're trying to unpack all of the things that we've learned and trying to approach this, you know. And again, the thousand year reign, it may not seem like a, a big sticking point, it, it was to me at first, but now it's, <laughs> Revelation is a beautiful ending, like showing the ending to the, the consummation of that age and what the Lord did and um, the perfect cube of the, you know, at, at the end and understanding the Holy of Holies is that perfect cube. And like, you see all these things and you just, you're, you're trying to talk about it, but they, it's almost like futurists and preterists. And I think you said this to me last night, David, you said that um, we, we have allegory, like we, 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 we take the Bible and we look at some things allegorically and some things literally, and it's almost like the futurists and the preterists are flip-flopped. Does that make sense? Yeah, they do. They mm. take the time text allegorically. Mm. Yeah, the it time text allegorically. doesn't really mean allegory. soon, but they take the metaphorical language and the allegorical language and they make that literal. Yeah. Yes, it's going to be, you know— all this stuff, you know, the locusts are coming out of the pit and all this stuff is literally going to happen. Yeah, locusts you know? are helicopters, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like when you hear the beast comes out of the sea, Jeff, like for whenever I used to hear it, I thought, man, what's this beast going to look like? Like I'm, you know, I'm thinking of like alien, you know? With all the heads and yeah, you got all that stuff. People riding on them, like, like some beast out of the sea, like some dune riding a big bug or something. So I, I'll ask Worm. you a direct question. I'm just a direct question with a direct answer. What is the beast? Bob? <laughs> <laughs> that was a great answer. <laughs> now, see, there's a lot, and, and that's the thing that's tough about when you talk, when you're trying to talk about predators, is everybody's got their favorite. What about this? What about the rapture? What about right. The and there, in my mind, there's still a lot of little things because you, you, you learn some things about this, but then you're challenged by somebody else writes about it, and then you start morphing your thing. So I'm going to say my position at this point is, you know, you, there's a lot of things that you still don't have the details, you know, down on. Um, but 
for me, you see the overarching plan, you know, I know that this stuff has to be what it is, a millennium and everything. You know, I may not have all the answers, but I know based on the time text and everything that I see, the consummation, it all has to fit in there. But now you go back and forth with the whole beast imagery, the beast in the, in the season. Everything. Obviously, you got the number of the beast. And, oh, that's Nero. But then you got the beasts and you got the seven heads and you got the, you know, the seven hills and the seven cities and the nations and all that stuff. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and you've got, you know, the woman riding the beast. And, you know, is it the Roman kingdom and Jerusalem? And, you know, so. But that's a lot of the little nitty gritty stuff that people want to flock to when you start talking about anything preterist. Don't get bogged down in the weeds. Let's look at the overarching hermeneutics of whatever this stuff is, it has to be passed. Let's get past that. But no, they want to jump in and start saying, what about the beast? What about the number? What about the rapture? And that's the advantage of futurism because they can make it anything they want it to be. And we can't just, because it's in the future. You'll find out it's going to happen in the future where us, we're looking past. So they want a definite, what was it? Well, the sea represented chaos and that beast was a chaos beast. You know, there's a lot, so much symbolism. It's not like it actually came up out of water. You know, we have to understand in scripture, the sea represents chaos. To the Jews, that's how they viewed it. This, you know, Leviathan and Behemoth, they're not literal beasts. They're chaos monsters that God is depicting reigning over. And mm-hmm. that's the important thing to see there. I think right. the biggest, one of the biggest, hardest things to deal with when talking preterism is we learned all of this stuff gradually over many years. You know, I read my first book and then you start. So we've worked out a lot of these pieces over a lot of years. And then you go to share one piece of somebody and they want you to unpack everything you've learned for the past 10 years. Yes. We can't, let's not. So that's when I, when I, approach people and talk to them about this topic, I always try to start with the simple, with hermeneutics. If I can get them to rethink the Bible and realize audience relevance, now, don't ask me a question specifically about that. Let's deal with this. Okay, so if audience relevance and hermeneutics and all all of this is real, then now the question you're about to ask me Rethink it, and what what do you think it could be? You know, what are the other options? Instead of going to all the specifics, let's think about how to think about the specifics. Because I can't sit here and unpack to you in one sitting or even multiple settings everything I've gradually learned and built upon and changed my views on for the past twenty years. That's we're not going to go there. But let me start you with the on the path, you know, because the conversation would never end. You know, yeah, you, you and then, so the real the framework is, and I've done this with people. What does this mean? What does the first verses in Revelation mean when it says that he's written to the church? Are they real? Who are they? You know, rethink your thought and don't bypass the time statements and just jump right into the, trying to meet of, grab into the meat of it. Let's think about what is the setup here? What is the way we should be looking at these conversations? And, in, in you know, some of you standing here, yeah, okay, well, if that's true, then how does that affect your view of the rapture and all that? You know, there's all of those little things, but no, people want to gravitate to, yeah, what about the beasts and what about the aliens and what about the helicopters? You know, don't get bogged down in that. Let's talk about the basics because once you can gr- firmly grasp that, it will reshape the scripture as you read it on your own. I don't have to answer those questions. Now you're going to come back to me and ask specific questions. Well, how does this affect that? Same thing, you know, he talked about it in his testimony as mother. What does this mean? Well, once you start seeing those things or you start having a different hermeneutical framework in your mind, you start seeing those things yourself. Then we can deal with them on a gradual basis. But, you know, it's tough when you even try to break 
into talking to somebody about that kind of stuff that all of a sudden they're going to want to go down every path that they can, every little rabbit hole. Oh, what about this? What about that? And you'll be there forever. So sure, it's like to, tough to give our to give our audience a, a reference. What what Jeff was talking about was. Uh, when uh, David Curtis's mother came to him and said, "What does this mean? This generation shall not pass." And he said, "I think it means what it says, you know." And that's, but it doesn't mean what it says when you're talking to a futurist. It means, and it changes, and it means something completely different. So the beast. Um, yeah, let's hear the, your version. I want to hear that. Okay, so Bob did a good job of in his lecture showing that the beast goes back. It's it's Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the beast. The sea beast, now Pastor Kurz talked about the sea being chaos, and that's true. The, the, the sea can be chaos. It can, it can represent internal sin and chaos within the heart. The sea can also represent the Gentiles. So I see the sea beast being, the, being Rome. I see the land beast being Israel. And they come together oops, to persecute the first century church, yep. which in Revelation 12, you know, God sends them to Pella, basically, in the desert, and, and they're safe. But that's the beast. And then um, the 666 is Nero Caesar. It's a common cryptogram, okay? Right. Hermeneutics. What's going on? This our, What's our historical hermeneutic? Um, we don't use cryptograms today. Our, our alphabet is not connected to a number system like theirs. And we know from archaeology that, you know, on a wall— you know, it was kind of like graffiti. The number of my my beloved is, you know, 848 or whatever. And people could go, oh, it's Mary. You know, I mean, they could figure this out. So calculate the number of the beast. Um, you know, his number is that of a man, 666. That's Nero Caesar. You know, he persecuted the church for three and a half years, roughly, between what, uh, 80, 64 to 68, I think. I think, I think Chilton like gives it 64 to 68. Yeah. Um, but I... Yeah. So if you guys ever saw the uh, Christmas story, you remember those little decoder rings that they sent? That was a cryptogram, right? Don't forget to eat your Ovaltine. So this Nero Caesar thing is a trick where Hebrew, the letters match numbers. And so it works out. And it actually works out whether it's 616 or 666, I read, right? Which is pretty wild because there's actually two different references and one of them says 616, and the other one says 666, and they both, they work. both work. Yeah, It's because a different language, different audiences are getting this, so they, yeah, they would have understood it that way. So Yeah, I think really this is an interesting talk because I'm reminded what David said yesterday about him at a certain point being a halfway preterist, where he thought it was about halfway there. <laughs> and it's funny, all of my life I think I've been halfway and didn't know anything about preterism, and the more I listen, the more I'm intrigued about this because I've been saying forever, and you just said this, Bob, you know, you, we got to see it through their eyes in their time with their beliefs and their symbolism. Yeah. And I've been saying that forever since I'm a kid. And all my pastors are like, no, that's not how it is. And I'm like, yeah, it is. We're, we're not in their time. We don't know. They spoke this to the people in their time because they couldn't read. They didn't go to school. They knew how to farm. They knew how to build. They knew how to cut. They knew, they knew everyone had a task they could do. But they didn't have anything like we have. And so, you know, we think we're so smart because we have an education and we've just, we, we can't see it. I think a lot of that, it ties in even with what Bob was saying, is Christians today believe that the Bible was God wrote words that meant what they meant at all times, and he's not going to lie to us or, or trick us. They don't believe that the individual writers, like Bob was saying, had a, a, a literary f source or a form or a writing style, or they didn't add special effect words. 
No, God would never do that. These words mean what they mean, and we can read them in all times, and they're always going to mean what they mean. They don't look at the fact that there's cultural relevance in there and that they're saying things that, no. And people refuse because it's God's word. It has to be this, God wrote it, you know, the people just jotted it down. There was, you know, the words meant exactly what they mean, and they can't instill in those words their own personality. And so most Christians are not going to, they don't want to accept the fact that there could be uh twists and stuff that they were writing for an audience. No, it has to be literally what God literally meant in literal words that always going to mean the same to us. And piggybacking off of that and what Andy had mentioned about the definition of words, getting back to hermeneutics, you know, like in the book of Revelation, it talks about these things are going to take place on the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that Greek word is what? Gi, and it, it can mean land. It can mean the Roman Empire. But we read scripture, we see world, and we we interpret it through our understanding of world. We don't know sometimes that there's there's seven different meanings for world. And that's a translational you know. error because, issue yeah. because we're translated into our culture. And exactly. that word means this to us, but we're thinking that word meant that to them. And well, we don't. And, and that translational, for me, has always been a huge thing. Because you know, Dr. Cook out in California, he, he used to preach all the time, and then he got married, and this gal, she knows the languages, and she translates back and forth. And I started watching her, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's what I was thinking. Or, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, because we've translated. And how many versions of the Bible do we have now? we got this version and that version, and let's make it so that the people can understand it. So we'll speak, put it in just regular speak instead of thee and thou and all this other stuff. But what, like you were saying earlier, Glenn, it's not very, it's very, very. So how many times have, have humans, and I come from the Catholic Church, so you know I've heard a lot of different things, and there's been a lot of changes there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I, think we, I think we get lost in translation. Hey, real quick, I wanted to, Jeff, Jeff, what Jeff was just saying was really good. It's like, I think our, the, the literal, literalist uh, and most modern believers, I think their view of inspiration is kind of messed up. It's almost like they think that God, God just downloaded information into the scriptural writer's head, and the scriptural writer was on autopilot, like it was being divinely dictated. Mechanical dictation. Yeah, and this was the Word of God. Now, it is the Word of God, but it's filtered through an individual who is distinct and unique and lives in a certain period of time. And is going to use the word phrase, the words, phrases, and vocabulary of his day, and also common themes and motifs. It's like if God was speaking today and he wanted me to say, everybody needs to wake up to reality, I could say something like, we need to take the red pill. And everybody here would know exactly what I'm talking about. But 2,000 years from now. 2,000 years from now, a dispensationalist <laughs> is going to read that and say, Where's the pills? Where's they, the pills? They, what were these pills they were literally taking? No, and, no, you know, no. They had a pill. They have a pill in their time that they're supposed to take now. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, right. so, that's the red pill. That's yeah, right. I thought what, what, you were, what Jeff was saying, which is so good, because we need to understand what inspiration is really all about. It's God using real people in real time to speak theological truth, but that person's personality and that person's world that he was living is going to come out in that. They're idioms. You know, yeah, we always talk about exactly, idioms. People yeah. We have our idioms today and we write a book today, 200 years from now, somebody may read it and have no clue. What do you mean kick the bucket? Or what do you mean it's raining cats and dogs? 
you know. Oh, when yeah. When you write that Hidden Kingdom book, Mike. Teasy. Uh, Andy, remember, Teasy did one the other day on a Samson when she said, there is a difference between a booty call and a butt dial. Oh, yeah. I love that. And that's in our language. I'm sorry if that sounds bad, but think about it, guys. That's, I love that one. That's such a good example. Uh, the, what's the difference between a booty call and a butt dial? We know, <laughs> wow. but in, those, in our language, if you go 2,000 years from now, they're going to be like, that's those the same people thing. were, and, every and, time and they if, wanted to get with somebody, they were they butt think? dialing like crazy. And it's yeah. like, no, actually, you got that backwards, buddy. Uh, what, if it's, what if it's the other way a couple thousand years from now? Every time they see butt dial, they think booty call. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's like, hilarious. They were really hooking up back then. That guy, <laughs> that butt that guy was everybody. so awesome. He was butt dialing constantly. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't get it. You know, was he like, did he have a bad phone? Yeah, but it, then it was the yeah, back. Yeah, early name like Bishop, you know, you get butt dialed a lot. So they were, they would think that a lot more was going on with me than is. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. But yeah, so that's 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 a great point. That's you know? just not time period. That's cultural. Right. People who come yeah. to this country from another culture, they don't understand our idioms at all. Mm-hmm. And you have to be taught them because you're never going to figure out what it means. That's true. If you're not taught what the idioms are. And it's, it's funny when they, it's funny to hear other cultures mess them up too. Right. Get the words wrong. And you're like, yeah, that's always that's kind of I mean, fun. It yeah. is. They're, Do you have an example trying. in mind by any chance? No, I, you, you hear about them, but I can't think of it. They use yeah. the wrong word, or, you know. I heard one the other day, but I totally can't remember what it was. Yeah, I but love you it. You just kind of giggle. <laughs> well, I think that's really big because David earlier said East versus West culture, and most of that Eastern world still is stuck in that. I mean, if you go to the Middle East and you go all of those places, those folks are still stuck back 2,000 years ago, and they still live that way. And they we call them radicals, but they believe what they believe. Yeah. And we and we can't understand a lot of that because we we're we're different. Well, Stan's wife is from Colombia, and you know, so I was talking to her about idioms. You know, Stan, Stan is a member of your church, right? Yes. and uh, you know, like we would say, he bought the farm, meaning he's dead. Okay? Right. Well, how how are you going to understand that if someone doesn't tell it to you? Because bought the farm, you'd think, oh, he went and bought a piece of land or something, you know? Sure. So how these even develop, I don't understand. But it's, again, you either learn them in the culture or you don't, someone has to teach them to you. Yeah, we talked about that one time. intuitive. About three days and three nights. Like we, you know, when you talk about, you know, uh, we tried to figure out, okay, was it a literal three days and three nights? Was it actually three days? You know, the, the Gospels, it doesn't make sense, but then you've got, we can go back and we can reference Jonah. Was it, you know, was this uh, an idiom? Three days and three nights? Was that an idiom or was it actually a literal? And we've, you know, we've we've been able to do the math and see that, you know, we can fit this in 72 hours and it's a high Sabbath and all that, you know, these are things that we didn't even know what they were. Like we were reading in our modern English and it's like, and it was on high Sabbath. And it was like, oh, cool. It must've been a really super cool Sunday. You know, we're thinking- What were they smoking? Yeah. <laughs> it was, and even for us, we're saying, it's a, we're saying it's a super cool Sunday, but in reality, Shabbat was a Saturday. But that high Sabbath wasn't necessarily on a Saturday, right? Which we learned from Leviticus 23 and where the feasts fall in and, you know, certain day like- Wow, without without having that Old Testament and then getting into Revelation and just picking it up and trying to read it as an American with our minds, with our culture, it's going to take us all over the place. And so I have people that say, hey, I'm not looking for a hole in the ground. I'm looking for a hole in the sky. And that that's literally what they believe. And But you got to understand, these people have believed this. And by the way, I love a lot of those people that say those things. They're dear to me, and I want them to understand. Like, when I say, hey, that's already happened, guys, you know? And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? And rather than saying, you're a heretic, they're saying, well, you need to read your Bible more. 
And it's like, ah, I don't think you're reading yours. <laughs> like, you know, and, and you almost feel like you're being a jerk, but I don't mean to be. And so I just, if I could get our listeners to just really put in some effort, like you said, Jeff, you can't, if you look at the time statements first, if we can just get you to start there, then you can build the framework. You know, the millennial reign, that's, that takes a minute, right? It takes a minute to figure that out. Can anybody here in this panel, like, can you break down that 40-year exodus for us, like, in a simple way? Like, can you, like, could you, could you guys, you and Mike work uh, together and, and, and Dave, like, tell our audience how Matthew shows us that, you know, and how Revelation, like, we know that, like, I know Revelation is nothing more than an extended all of a discourse, right? Am I wrong? No. So, and that's, that's the beauty of it, but could you guys explain to the audience, like, we know what the, maybe go back to the old 40-year exodus, but then kind of unpack and show us a little bit of the new? You don't have to get in too deep, but if you want, go as deep as you'd like. Well, I think most people don't understand that there was a second exodus, another 40-year period. 40 is one of the major types in, in the Bible. 40 is used for a lot of things, okay? It's a, it's a transition period. And that 40 years— Could you explain type and anti-type? Because you just said type, and I really want okay. the audience to make sure they know. I, I don't mean to get too deep there. A type but. is a picture. The anti-type is the fulfillment of that picture, okay? okay? And so the Exodus, you know, we said the 40 years, they got in the promised land. The New Testament, we got 40 years, they get into the spiritually promised land. But to me, the cool thing of this, God told us all this a long time ago. If you go back to Leviticus 23 and the feasts, and you look at the feasts, he, the feasts are literally a, a program to show what was going to happen. All right, the Passover. All right, on the 14th of Nisan, Yeshua was, the, the Passover happened. Well, Yeshua died on the 14th of Nisan, fulfilling that Passover. You know, then you have unleavened bread, and then you have the resurrection, first fruits, and then you have Pentecost, and those are the spring feasts. And then you have a four-month gap, which represents those 40 years. Then you have the fall feast that bring in the second coming. And that gap, I think, is what we see in Daniel. You have three and a half years, then you have a gap. Then, you know, the first three and a half years, Yeshua's ministry. The last three and a half years, the tribulation. That gap is there. It's The Lord told us it was going to be there, if you understand the feasts. So all this is laid out in Scripture before it ever happens on the exact dates and everything else. So it's just the picture's there. It's just trying to understand it. And that typology, the first exodus is a deliverance from physical slavery. So God is teaching Israel what, you know, through this physical bondage and slavery, and he delivers them, you know, through the blood of a lamb and so forth. And then the anti-type is Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to deliver you from spiritual slavery. Amen. I've come to set you free from the ultimate slavery. So all of that was a picture to show them and they understood, the Jews of Jesus' day understood that when Messiah came, he would recapitulate Israel's history. That's why you see Matthew developing this second exodus in his gospel. You know, when in the uh, transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come to talk to him about his exodus, mm. is that Greek word, all right? And, and that is the beginning. Oh, and that's in the language in the Greek, yes. but we can't see it in the English. Right, right. Now, some... Yeah. Wow, wouldn't that be awesome if somebody would just... That's, that's a hook. Throw it in there for us a that's, little bit. That's, that's what we call a hook. Yeah. Translations, wow. 
Yeah. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you're reading that, you understand, oh, this is the second Exodus, Mm -hmm. you know, prophesied in Isaiah 11. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just, I feel like if we could, I don't know. I mean, other than just through the studies, you know, I guess this is really the only way. Whenever I'm trying to discuss that these things are fulfilled, um, I keep getting bombarded with this one phrase. And so I don't know if you guys could help me out a little bit here, but it's he's quoting Paul and he's saying that, um, that I need to be a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And they're saying that I'm not dividing my Bible up correctly. Have you guys heard this before? That's a dispensational it, phrase. And I think yes. that's KJV. I can't, I, I mean, right? am I right? Like, I don't Rightly know, dividing like, the word of truth is KJV. Yeah, just I, I'd tell them just look in a better translation and see what it says. Like, that's what that's impossible say? to the KJV only crowd. You're not going to get oh, that. You, you have a whole deeper issue there. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I I don't know. They they might be if they're KJV only. I mean, I I, I just don't know. So let's say I don't that, know how you reach them. So let's okay. So let's just say, just tell them that the KJV is based on a text written by Desiderius Erasmus, who was the Roman Catholic monk who debated Martin Luther in. The Reformation. Yeah. So, like, a lot of them don't realize this. Like, a lot of those KJV people are very anti-Catholic. Right. And you hit them with that, you kind of, their head sort of explodes. Oh. You know? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, yeah, I wouldn't know what to... Well, many of the KJV people, they're referring, they keep referring to 1611. Yeah. You know, they refer to that version... I dare say most of them couldn't read the 1611. No. And the one they're reading they now is not the 1611. They use the fourth edition, yeah. but they're referring back. They say it's the 1611, which it's not. They're using the fourth. So there's a lot of yeah, a lot of problems. Well, I know that. they're not reading the 1611 because the S's look like F's. Right. Yeah. And so when you're reading, right. you know, the Pafalfs, it's hard to, you know, yeah. and yeah. I know that they're it's not. It's very but, confusing. But let's, so let's say that it's, it's, I think it's linking back to a book that C.I. Schofield actually wrote or a leaflet called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, right? So they're saying that there are certain books in the Bible that were not meant for us in that in that leaflet, which I don't, you know, I don't think that the, the churches that I've been involved in, they say they're rightly dividing the Word of Truth, but they, le- they believe that all of the Bible is for us. So it's a really, it's a strange dichotomy here to work with. But I think in their mind, they're saying that we're not dividing up the Bible correctly and that there are certain dispensations of whatever it might be right? The dispensation of the Mosaic law and then or disp- we're in the dispensation of grace right now, they say, right? right. Yes. However, um, how do I, you know, how do I get them to break from that? I mean, you've been dealing with this a lot longer, Pastor Curtis. Like, how do you get them to break from that? Is it possible to say, is there something that I can give them, you know, like to, to say, look, where did you get the dispensation of grace from? Like, where did that idea come from? Is that scriptural or is that from a book that you've got? Yeah, well, they just divide up into different dispensations and God's used works this way in this dispensation and this way in this dispensation and there's future dispensations and it, it gets very confusing. There's really no scripture to support. You know, they take the verse in Timothy, you know, rightly dividing the word of truth and say, you've got to divide it up into these specific periods of time. What that's not what it's talking about at all, but they want to divide it up into that. Yeah, they're using the English word divide. Right. And, and making it actually divide, right? But that's not what the word is. It's is what what is it what does that dividing the truth mean? Is it just discerning or I think that's more the issue, understanding 
the truth. You mm-hmm. know, we have to dig in to understand what the truth really is. You know, understand that, that Christ himself was the true Israel of God. Mm-hmm. He was the fulfillment. You know, if we understand him as the true Israel, then we don't have to make it a national thing anymore. And we understand that we are the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You know, in Christ, we become the Israel of God. Right. And those ages, um, I'd go to 1 Corinthians 10, what, 11, where Paul says that we've we've come to the end of the ages. Mm-hmm. And the Jew understood that there's two ages. There's the Old, Co- Old Covenant Mosaic Age, and then there would be the Messianic New Covenant Age. The age and the Jews come. also understood, and we hadn't gotten into this, but they also understood that there would be 40 years, a second exodus between those two ages. Now, that was a, that was a view during Jesus' day um, of the millennium, which, you know, we hold to. Like from like the rabbi schools and stuff, like that's what they believed and they taught. Right, right. But getting back to 1 Corinthians 10, 11 is, it, it uses a plural, ages. The Jew understood Within the Old Covenant Mosaic Age, there were different ages. There was the age of Abraham, uh, the uh, you know the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. So there were these ages within the Old Covenant. And so he says, if you want to use dispensations with them, I would go, hey, well, look, Paul says those ages were coming to an end in his day. And then show yeah. them, you know, the two-age model. And, and Pastor Curtis does a really good job on the two-age model. Mm-hmm. But that's what they need to see is, is the two ages. One was passing away and one was maturing and was about to come. Mm-hmm. So if you guys all just like, maybe this is not a good question, but if, if you all had to be like, what, what you think for someone else would be kind of a good starting place for uh, preterism, like a particular part of the Bible where you're just like, well, ruminate on this part of the Bible and see if you can reconcile that or however it works for you. Like, where would that be? I would start with audience relevance, hermeneutics. Again, there's a science to interpretation. If they understood audience relevance, read the Bible like it was written 2,000 years ago. And then when you see this text that says soon, you say, okay, he's telling them that. Yeah. So how does that, and that yeah, to how do me, you reconcile that? Is, you know, that's the key. Just read your Bible with the idea that it you know, was written to the Galatians 2,000 years ago. What did it mean to the Galatians when he said this? What did it mean to the Hebrews when he said this? Don't bring it into our time and then read it because we see soon and we're like, okay, it's going to happen soon. And anybody, just ask anybody about the second coming. When's the Lord coming? And they'll say soon. Okay, what does that mean? You know, how does soon get last for two thousand years and still be soon? soon how mean, can that possibly be? Soon means one. Th- soon means one thing to God and something else to us. God doesn't tell time the so same I way say, we do. So the Lord is intentionally <laughs> no, receiving he's, he's us. All messed up. Yeah. Well, and I tell people with that question, I say, well, the Bible was written to us. God didn't write the Bible to Himself. God's not bound by time. He's writing the Bible to humans, and He tells humans. Soon, and we're bound by time. So there's a time reference there. Has to mean something. I mean, the word means absolutely nothing at all if it can last over 2,000 years. They're going to keep going back to that. To discover that Jesus never said he was coming soon. Uh, he was more pacific this generation right. before all you guys die. You know, it was— uh, <laughs> and, and Very the Sanhedrin, specific. you're going to see it. Um, it was the apostles later talking about what he said who were saying it's soon. <laughs> because it was not soon, you know, a couple years ago, but, you know. 
Yeah. And, and allowing the Bible to interpret itself, what I like to do is not only show the futurist that, hey, you're, you're spiritualizing the time statements and you're literalizing apocalypse. You've got this totally backwards. But I take them to the Old Testament, not just on the genre of the stars falling like Jeff was talking about, but also the time statements. Go to Ezekiel 7, go to Ezekiel 12. God told them through Ezekiel, judgment was at hand. And the false prophets said, no, it's far off. And this really got God mad, okay? And so it's, it's clear it's the false prophets who are changing the meaning of at hand. And, of course, judgment did come in the lifetime of the prophet and those contemporaries. So that language in the, New Te- in the Old Testament I did a study, and Bob's been been doing a study on this too, on imminence in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always within one year to forty-one years, possibly in, in what you're looking at, maybe fifty years. But it's it, still it, within it, the lifetime of the of yeah, the it's prophet. Yeah, not two thousand years ever. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. you have you're on solid ground. You teach them apocalyptic language in the Old Testament, and now Jesus is a prophet of his people of Israel. So he's going to use that language. And when the New Testament authors use eminence, the Old Testament did too, and it was always within roughly a generation. So, unless, like in the in in specific, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the timing and Daniel, that's actually you know, and it it tells them it tells you it's four hundred and ninety years because it's far far away. Seal it up; it's a long way away. That's only in those cases, and he tells them so. So yeah, I look forward the to time those studies and imminence oh, yeah. in the Old well, Testament. Yeah. What Mike was talking about, I I think there's what you got like Isaiah 13, and I think we were looking at Zephaniah chapter one, and I had kind of like a longer period of time, and Mike was like, you know, brought up some stuff that was really good that I ne- had never heard of before, but that even squeezes it. If Mike's right, it's it's even closer, like within ten to twenty years. But either way, like he said, either you're either looking at within ten to twenty years or at the most 40 or 50 years, it's still not 2,000 years, you know, um, no matter how you look at it. And the problem you get is that futurists jump on these day of the Lord texts in the Old Testament, and they think there is one singular day of the Lord, and that's the second coming of Christ at the end of the history. What they don't realize is that the day of the Lord is any time God brings judgment against anyone in time and on earth and in history. And there were days of the Lord in the past. A big one was the Babylonian, you know, the first destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what a lot of those prophecies are about. And like Mike said, that first destruction of Jerusalem was in the lifetime of the people that these texts were being written to. Uh, So the imminency is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, it's Uh, it's so unique, guys, because... If you think about what we've talked about over the last hour, however long it's been, we've talked about how large numbers like a thousand years are hyperbole. I was having this exact thought and waiting for a place to put it. it now's the moment. Yeah. So jump in there. You know. <laughs> so we've got a thousand years, which is hyperbole, but then we've got soon, and we're seeing it as a long time. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Totally like twisting that over. Totally Everything yeah. is everything is backwards. Yeah. Well, it makes yeah. it totally makes sense to me because a thousand years is always hyperbolic to the human a thousand forget years. A thousand is always hyperbolic to the human to the human mind. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, Andy. Yeah. Always. <laughs> Pick 
picture a thousand yeah. Legos to the on the floor. Degree. Yeah. yeah. And any idea what a thousand Legos looks like? Do you have any concept of, of a, what a parking lot? <laughs> try to picture a thousand cars. You cannot do it. It's way too big. And here's the thing for the dispensationalist who wants to interpret everything literally, and they want to interpret John literally, it's a literal thousand years. Okay. Did the vision last a thousand years? Did John literally sit there and see this? No, it's obviously a literary device. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just think know, it's interesting because yeah, soon, that. you get to soon, and soon means soon. Yeah, there's nothing else it can mean. Yeah. See, the re- can, and the reason why we've got this, and it's backwards, is, is again, we, we get back to audience relevance. It has to be, soon has to be 2,000 years because we haven't literally seen the right. st- stars fall from the sky. Right. So, they, because, so it's like one precedes the other, yeah. car before the horse. We didn't see what we are expecting because we aren't understanding what they were expecting. What they were expecting. So we aren't exactly. seeing what we expect, so therefore we have to twist everything else to make it work for our plan. Or we don't even understand what C means. Revelation 1-7, right? All the tribes of the land are going to mourn, and they're going to see the Son of Man coming on, coming upon the clouds in glory. All right. Well, that Greek word for see can mean understand I, or perceive. Just like, do you see what I'm saying, yeah. Andy? Yeah. I use see in the sense of understanding. So yeah. when they saw the Roman armies come, they understood. Ah. Oh, Yeshua, Messiah, he's coming. Which makes it clear in Luke. Luke (laughs) makes it so clear that it's the armies. Mm -hmm. He actually says it in Luke that it's the armies. So if they escape and they go to Pella, and we do know historically that it actually happened, it's so easy easy just to accept that for me. Andy was, uh, (laughs) we were talking about the mark of the beast. And Andy goes, what did it mean for the people that read it back then? Oh, I figured it must have had like a literal thing, but nobody ever talks about yeah, it. Yeah, it microchips under experience. your skin 2,000 yeah. years from now. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Once Bill yeah, Gates exactly. created yeah, the microchip. Meant, right? Yeah, they knew yeah, that. Yeah, totally. so, that's not just, for us, that's for but them. But that was, it was so simple for him to see that because he didn't have all of that stuff masked. Wait, did he right. see it or did he understand he, it? He didn't see it. Y'all messing me up here with these words. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I've been approached with, gentlemen, is... I've been told if you look at the if you're looking at the resurrection of the past, if you're saying that the resurrection happened in the past, then you're no different than is it Hymenaeus and Philetus? Could somebody like help me out there? Like I, I we are way different because they were saying it was past when it wasn't. That's right. The temple was still standing. They were confusing. Okay, if the temple's still standing and the resurrection's already happened, then there's a problem here. Okay. But when Paul was talking to the leaders, he said there is about to be, in Matthew, uh, Acts 24, there's about to be a resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. Soon. That was, okay, about. That was mellow there. It's going to happen mellow, soon, yeah. all right? This, is, this resurrection is very soon. It's not sometime long in the future. So that's the confusion there. They were teaching it before it actually happened. They were wrong, okay? We're teaching it has happened, and it has. And the thing that's weird about that, and this is uh, Don Preston has a great book on this, an eye-opening book. People want to quote that we're that, we're, we're, you're the same as them. Well, let's think about it. When they said it, okay, let's take what we believe the resurrection, not we, preterists, modern people with a futurist perception, what do we believe the resurrection is? It's going to happen on the last day when the stars fall and everything's dead. End of the world scenario, resurrection, we all go to heaven. 
How did those guys back then convince anybody that it had already happened? Yeah. If it means what you believe, this is what I tell the futures, if it means and takes time, takes place in the time and scenario that you believe it does, how did anybody back then ever convince anybody that it had happened? They didn't believe that it was the end of the world because obviously they were talking about it and they weren't dead. You know, so the point is they don't they don't see the logical conclusion to what they're saying. They believe it's going to be the earth-shattering, earth-ending event, but yet you're saying that the people back then believed that and they taught that and somebody believed them? Right. I mean, you know, well, hello, look out the window. The world's still here. Yeah. So, Go ahead. So, Hamileus and Philetus were Judaizers. If you look at the context, it's talking about foods and different things according to the Levitical law. And so, in Thessalonians, you have the error that the day of the Lord has already taken place. And then in Timothy, you have the concept that the resurrection has already taken place. And so Jeff brings up a great point. Was a Paul an idiot? Because Paul's defense should have been, just look out your window. Obviously, it hasn't yeah. happened, right? Right. But Paul yeah. was teaching, according to the Old Testament prophets and Jesus, a spiritual coming, a day of the Lord. And so I throw that out to people a lot too, but... They were Judaizers, and the Judaizers wanted to keep the law going. So they believed that there was some kind of judgment, I think probably in the 50s, um, where like 40,000 Jews died and there was conflict with Romans, and they want to say, well, that's the day of the Lord. Okay, so the, the Lord has come, and the resurrection has taken place, but they didn't associate that with the destruction of the temple. They wanted that temple and the old covenant to continue in the new covenant age. And so that's why they were saying that, that these things had already been fulfilled. And Paul says, no, they haven't. And he gives signs, you know, to show that it, it hadn't taken place yet. Well, the problem real, with all of this stuff oh, is that would have put everybody out of a job. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, oh, and now the priests and the pastors of the day. Their source when of the power truth, and yeah, authority. Yeah, that's absolutely. exactly it. And then the money, the power, it, that put them out of a job. And that's why we have a problem now with preterism and teaching people because we're coming up against the creeds and the confessions. And we talked about this when we went out to, to lunch with your wife and my wife. And that is, it's so hard to break down this system because now we have Bible colleges and we have denominations and we just have all this money and it's hard for pastors to say, you know, um, you know, not I don't want to look for David another did. career. Well, because yeah, you know? David, yeah, he did yeah. exactly that, I mean, and not it did put him out of a job. But you know, to do that, <laughs> yes, yeah, it just seems to me like you know, and forgive me if I'm outside of the audience relevance here, but Christ said that to Peter that upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I always, you know, the way I used to read it, I always thought, wait a minute, he's actually hurling something at the gates of hell. In other words, how it's am I going to put it's a, it's a, It's not defensive. It's That's right. Offensive. It's offensive. offensive. Oh, yeah, it's offensive. And You're so I feel, like, I feel like, you know, even now in the Messianic age, where in the kingdom age, we are to still be on the offensive. Am I wrong? No, I, I think you're right. And we are to be spreading the gospel still. It never ends. We never stop telling the gospel. There are those out there that are going to respond to the call. So we should be on the offensive. And so I say, let's just get offensive. You know, and let's and offend to, somebody. <laughs> Go offend somebody. And, and to throw How can that I offend in, you today? Wow. I have no problem doing that. <laughs> Neither does Rick. <laughs> Without <laughs> even trying. And to throw that in with the, the subject kind of, of the millennium is that we rule and reign. 
with Christ. Right. And how do we rule Amen. and reign? Like, we rule and reign through the sword of the Spirit. Under the old yeah. covenant, they conquered through the physical sword, all, all the people dying and stuff. Okay. But under the new covenant, we rule and reign with Christ through the sword of the Spirit, the gospel. Right. The gospel is our dominion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what we need to keep in mind. Now, there would have been some audience relevance aspect to that because obviously there were spiritual battles at that time sure. that preterists believe now we're not dealing with. Mm-hmm. They were taking back the dark hold places. They were taking back the places that were, they were spreading the gospel into the darkness. Now, we don't have the same darkness, but we do. I mean, mm-hmm. you still got the people that are in darkness. Yes. But I think there might have been a little more of a literalism to what they were dealing with as far as taking back from the powers that were ruling the nations and stuff. So they were literally doing that. We're now uh, type in any type, I guess, but not Maybe the reverse, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Andy and I had a really great study together on the origin of Satan and the Divine Council. I love that one still, yeah. Yeah, we had such a great time with that. And to see what all Christ was doing simultaneously, like, I cannot wait to have that, (laughs) to see him. You know, I just, I can't wait. Because he is, he's healing people and he's extracting these the demonic. Oh, he's, he's healing over, the nations. He's, yeah. He, yeah, he's yeah. healing the nations. Like he's doing so much. And then when it's done, when I, when you see him on the cross, it took me a long time to finally see everything that's actually going on in this one moment. Well, this it's one moment. It's funny, Rick, that you just mentioned the divine council after you talked about you know upon this rock will I build my church. If you uh, if you read Michael Heiser on that passage. He, and I can't remember all the details off the top of my head right now, but he goes into the geography. Caesarea Philippi. Yeah. That's where he says it. And the worship of Pan. And the worship of Pan, yes. And that would have been the exact spot, you know, piggybacking to uh, Enoch, where the watchers made their vow and conspired together. Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, yeah. Yeah, so it's like on that exact spot. We didn't even so, cover that. We have so, so much more. Yeah, so the aggressor here. And yeah. then when he sends the 70 out or 72, depending on you know what you're reading, which translation you're reading, there were 70 nations that were disinherited by Yahweh that those watchers ruled over. Right. He's basically telegraphing to them that once I'm done cleaning up Israel— I'm coming for you, yeah, and I'm taking back what belongs to my father. Amen. He and was the aggressor. Will not and, prevail. That's right. <laughs> and that, by the way, um, there is an absolutely uh, horrible movement that calls itself preterist, and David did an excellent job speaking against it at this last conference called Israel only. Well, I wish they wouldn't call themselves preterists because I don't know what they are. But that... Sending the 70 out, telegraphing to the watchers that I'm coming for you next, totally destroys the premise of Israel only and shows that there was a point to Yeshua restricting his ministry to Israel for a certain time. But when he was done cleaning up Israel and casting out the demons in Israel, Mm -hmm. he's reclaiming those other nations for his father. So when you understand the divine council worldview and you understand uh, the stuff that like Brian Gadawa and Michael Heiser talks both talk about in their books, the nations you know were allotted to other gods, but Yahweh's going to reclaim those nations. 
when you get that, you really get the big picture and you know what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Michael Heiser's so, Naked Bible podcast is fantastic because oh. he, he just gets deeper and deeper. And it's like, how is it that I've never heard this stuff before? And he needs our prayer, by the way, Michael. Yeah, Michael is he has, still, he's battling with cancer, right? He's battling pancreatic still, yeah, cancer. Pancreatic yeah, pancreatic cancer, yeah. sure. Yeah, so he, he, everybody out there, he needs our prayers. Yeah. I was reading Luke 10 uh, this morning, the sending out of the 70, because I was looking at the millennium and how we, the church was ruling and reigning, sitting on thrones with Christ. And you go back, well, you know, the, the millennium began in Matthew 12, or we could go back even to Matthew 4. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. But definitely Matthew 12, yeah. where he binds the definitely, strong man, right? Definitely. Right. Well, also in the Gospels, you have Jesus giving his authority to the 70. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm giving you power over all the enemies. So even in the Gospels, before the ascension and the giving of the yeah. Spirit, you see him giving the saints on earth this authority and they're ruling. That and, and that power, 70, yeah. what's the 70 represent? Well, there were 70, 70 in the Sanhedrin. <laughs> um, but the 70 represent, Israel's supposed to be a light to the nations. Right. And there yeah. were 70 nations. Seven. All right. So in a sense, Israel represents the nations. Mm -hmm. And so what he's saying is you're the new Sanhedrin. You are going to be ruling with me over the nations of the world. Mm. And you're going to rule through the gospel. Wow. No, that's incredible. <laughs> wow. I love that. Yeah. that. I had I, I had a thought while you were talking about that, but I just, when you said that, it like blew my mind. So I'm so excited. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> you ever get that way? You know? Um, well, guys, I think that we should just, let's, let's end it here. We could go on. We could actually continue on, but for our listeners who have sent me emails or sent questions or put pictures of turds on my page, <laughs> I'm bringing it up again, Andy. <laughs> it's his second favorite subject after preterism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so true. There's the preterist and there's the turdist. How much? Yeah, the turdist. How much? How much? How much time you got? You know. So no, but but um, it means a lot to me that you guys uh, came here. And that you met with us to talk, and I want everyone to uh, to know who you guys are because I can't answer all these questions. And some of you guys have gotten years and years of study into this, just like Jeff said. You know, you start with the framework and you build from there. You can't answer all the questions right away, and uh, and that's true for dispensationalists too. If you really stop and think about it, if I said, "Hey, but what about this?" You're going to have to spend a lot of time describing all those things that you're going to describe. So. There's other ways to think about this, and and that's what, in my opinion, just this happens to be the right way, you know. And that's just from years of study. I'm not being a jerk. It's just I'm no, right, I, and they're I wrong. I don't think you're being a jerk. I'm just laughing because of all the prior jokes about <laughs> the times I've said I'm right and they're yeah, wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So which which we which were all jokes. If you don't listen to the podcast, you wouldn't probably understand that. That's just kind of a running gag. Of it rich, is. But, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're taking it out of context if we don't know the context. Well, that's the, exactly right. There the you cultural go. surroundings of. Yeah, because I remember one of the things, Jeff, when, when I asked you about the sun, moon, and stars, I, I asked my audience many times, do you have any idea how big a star actually is? 
like it dwarfs our planet. Yeah. If that star, if oh, it's a literal it star, one, it like would go through the earth. It wouldn't land on the earth. It would just. <laughs> we just need one. And and us. why are they called to to go into a cave and call the rocks to hide on them if it's all going to happen into the world in a twinkling of an eye? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Star. All the stars are going to crush the earth. Exactly. What good is hiding under a rock if a right. star is going to annihilate the earth? <laughs> like you might as well just stand out. That in the open. that it alone tells you how symbolic yeah. this is. You know, like yeah. it. You just, but you have to know, you've got to read the Tanakh. You have to, to understand the New Testament. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I'm always talking about how illiterate the people were back there, but if you listen to people talking today, you can see how many illiterate we have today. Biblically illiterate, yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, Pastor Curtis, again, thank you for letting us come here to Brian Bible Church. Thanks for coming. We and doing it. this. It means a lot to us, guys, uh, and, and also Jeff McCormick from Brian Bible Church. Uh, guys, BrianBibleChurch.org. I've said it over and over and over. Go and check them out with the resources. you. I'm sure if you guys have questions, you can watch. Uh, they have a live broadcast every single Sunday morning. And at the end, there's a Q&A. You allow these email questions to come across early. And at the end of it, unlike any other church that I've ever been in in my life, after he gives a sermon, he allows the congregation to ask a question. And he actually takes questions online, which is cool. I haven't taken advantage of that yet, but I will, <laughs> which is awesome. The goal but, of the questions is not to stump the preacher. It's not. <laughs> yeah. The goal of the questions is to, okay, you said this. Did you mean this? Or, or to clarify more. A question I just about that to, message. Right. I, no. Yeah. I, oh, I just yeah. can't send a random question. No, a random oh, question. Come Can on. you explain the millennium? <laughs> <laughs> Today's message is about love. In exact detail. Yeah. Super I do get those questions, and I, and I don't mind it, but the purpose is to, okay, this is what we talked about today. What is the meaning of Can life? Can I clarify? Yeah. Yes. Give me all those other questions to Jeff. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Forward Amen. to Bob. Yeah. <laughs> also, but, but Bob. Honestly, he'll pass them on to Glenn. But on, yeah. a, on a serious a book about him. On yeah. a serious note, that, that shows you the difference of this church from other churches. It does. And we talked about oh, yeah. that before, is that there's humility here. Yes. You know, the pastor is acknowledging, I could be wrong. Let's talk about this. You don't see that. I've... I've been to so many churches in my lifetime. I've only seen one other church do this, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's it's so freeing. And you know, you can you if you didn't understand something, you get further clarification. If you disagree, he'll look at. I mean, you just don't see that. And that's what I love about our pastor is that he's he has this humility about him and a true spirit of being a Berean. Mm -hmm. And and one so. thing from a technical side, which he mentions all the time. And you see this all the time. When you go to another person's, uh, any company's website, go to Apple, whatever, and you go to check, I, I want to talk to support. And you hit support. What's the first thing they do to you? Does it pertain to this, 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 or this? Right. They want to clarify what you're doing with. And you click that. Okay, here's some questions. Here's some, here's some articles to read about that. You don't have to text him or us for answers every time. We have 25 years mm -hmm. of teaching with the search engine. You can type anything you want in there and read to your heart's desire. Yes. And that's the place to start. You know, you don't got to come in on Sunday and all of a sudden, hey, tell me about the world. You know, go there, use it as a research tool. It's got a wealth of information. And then if you need some clarification after you've read every article in 25 years worth of articles, <laughs> then come back and ask us a question. Because and how much, are, uh, how much does that cost? It's free. <laughs> <laughs> Add that up. Yeah. It's absolutely free. That's what that's what blew me away. I went on there and you're talking about you have a sermon you can watch, 
you have an audio that you can listen to. They have an RSS. They have, you name it. And then he also has the transcript. Well, check this out. I was actually corresponding with a uh, Cuban pastor, and I couldn't pronounce his name if I tried. Yeah. And he's a preterist, and uh, he's trying to start a preterist church similar to what, you know, is going on here with Berean Bible Church, but, and, you know, Messenger translates the stuff for us so we can communicate. And he he's like, brother, there's just nothing. He's like, he basically has one preterist book. He's like, I have nowhere to go. And I'm like, wait a second, but you're on Facebook and stuff. So, and you're, you're reading these posts on Facebook. And he says, yeah, because whatever the software on his computer, I don't know how it works, but it's like, I can look something online and it translates me. It translates it for me. So I sent him the Berean site and I'm like, I'm like, here you go. I'm like, like David said, I'm like, or uh, Jeff said, I'm like, you have 25 years worth of sermons here. And, uh, and he, Google Translate, just Google Translate it. Yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. And he can translate them. And I mean, the guy, honestly, it was like, uh, it was like he hit the lottery or struck gold, and it's just it's just amazing, you know. Um, it's basically a yeah. common a, a preterist commentary it on is. the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually he'll he'll get to the whole New Testament, but it's like he doesn't even have to write a book because the church has developed pretty much a commentary, yeah. and it's a great resource for everyone out there. Yeah, it really is. Well, Bob, you know, thank you also. We we talked about, you know, briefly that uh, the papers that you've written and some of the the presentations that you've shown, like at the conference, that we're going to put a place on our website as well. Uh, I want to call it Crookshank Corner, but I don't think you'll let me call it that. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's just the place where you can go and read a lot of the articles. Uh, if you guys haven't seen what he did back in the conference, Bob's and bunker. Yeah, because <laughs> he just he 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 hurdles down and just like oh, I can't do anything for months. Yeah, <laughs> but um, if you guys haven't seen his conference talk, and uh, I don't know if you I don't know if you guys shared I can't remember, but I don't know if you guys shared his presentation or not. But when he gets into the binding of the strong man, like that was awesome. It was amazing. You guys have got to see that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I, th- I think it's up there. All the conference messages yeah. are all yeah. with the pres- They're all online. For this year, the for first year. time, all the conference messages. We used to sell them or you know, have them for people to buy who didn't. Yeah, I them. bought them all. Yeah, I but, bought them all. But this I year was the first too. year we made them all public. And uh, and by the way, back in 2012, Rich Nimick did one. And I wanted to mention this. Rich Nimick did one. That was the first year. It was, 2012. And Rich Nimick did one on the uh, being wise as serpents. Oh, man. That was an awesome one. He's all over the place, but when he gets to the end, I was like, well, why is the serpents, what, what is it, as soft as doves? Yeah, or harmless, gentle, harmless. harmless as doves? Wow, that was a great one. But anyway, I've got all those DVDs. You can get them on, I think you can buy them through Berean Bible Church, right? Yes, and as we run out of the DVDs, we'll probably stop selling them. So they're, you know, we're not going to print up a bunch of them again. But yeah. we, we still got a handful of them almost every year. Right. So, and then Mike Sullivan, also um, author of, let me let me say this right. <laughs> you you tell me the name. How, Secret Garden House. House the first the first one was House Divided: Bridging yeah. the Gap in Reformed Eschatology, and it it was a co-authored book between myself, uh, David Green, and Ed Hassard, and we're responding to seven Reformed theologians that tried to refute full preterism. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a debate book, and we cover every subject. 
And, you know, Glenn had mentioned uh, John L. Bray, and we were just so honored that John L. Bray, I sent him a copy, a transcript, and he says, you know, this is this is the best defense of preterism I've seen. Mm. You know, and I, I, we put that on the back of the book because I had so much respect for John L. Bray. Yeah. He was very instrumental for me. Um, so that that's our first book. And then the second one was based out of a lecture here at a conference where I spoke on Islamic eschatology, Talmudic eschatology, and um, evangelical Zionism. And I showed how that's a, a circular conflict in the Middle East because everyone wants the Battle of Armageddon and Gog and Magog to fulfill their eschatology. Yeah, so they're trying to usher rush it in. for this thing. Well, because like what is that all because about? Because their Messiah or their version of the second coming is going to destroy their enemies and somehow establish an earthly paradise on earth. So you have this constant conflict. So the way to break that conflict is number one, to teach them about who Yeshua is, first of all, and salvation by grace, but then to show how this end time war has already been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the subject of Armageddon deception. Yeah. So, which Jeff helped me. Well, and see, that's the one that I'm actually reading right now. And then in my brain, I keep thinking divided kingdom because I, I'm thinking of the dispensationalists and the preterists and the amillennialists and all of us. We're in the kingdom age, but we're all divided by this... Yeah. But what's going on, and obviously in my brain, because God is sovereign, he knows that this is the case in our time, in the culture that we're in. Like, he understands that. But I don't know. I feel I feel like we really need to explain ourselves further and further and try to, to get it out. But we we must love one another. We must love one another. We And Glenn Hill, thank you so much also for sitting in. And uh, his book, Christianity's Great Dilemma, like we said, we can go to glennlhill.com. Or you can go to BereanBibleChurch.org and get it there. Or we'll try to have a link on our website by the time this episode releases in 2027. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just Appreciate you guys going Soon. all that trouble. <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, that's, there's, Technically there's speaking, your joke. soon would have been 4,027. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, and, and I was just sitting here thinking, we keep hearing, is it John L. Bray? Do you know what you call the sound of a donkey? It's a bray. bray. Yeah, it's a bray. He was the original burrow. He was the original <laughs> one out there telling everybody and reading. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish I would have got a, got, had a chance to meet him. Yeah, his book, Matthew 24 Fulfilled. Was Matthew really 24 good. Fulfilled. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to get that book. Anyway, so thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Andy. Hey. And uh, we'll talk to you guys uh-huh. next time on the Burrows of Berea. See ya. Hey guys, this is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. <laughs> That's true. I would, I would freeze. He I, couldn't wear shorts as a kid, though. So remember, uh, it's his upbringing. He still doesn't know how to do it. I just don't have your constitution. <laughs> it's like it's cold in here, and I'm standing. I'm not even sitting. Yeah, <laughs> I turned it up a little. People are shivering. That's because you don't have any socks on, man. That's no true. Actually, that's true. That makes a big difference. If you wear yeah. socks. Also, also, also I, I have no socks. hair on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did. Also makes a big difference. Well, I've got a little bit of this to yeah. keep me warm here. I got a plenty of Same that. here. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're rolling?
All right. Well, welcome back to the Burroughs of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and 